0: Good morning. Hey, there you are. There I am. Well, it's really, uh, it's really exciting to uh, to be speaking again here. And uh, for those who don't know me, I think Andrew did a little intro at the beginning. But uh, my name is Mike Burns. Uh, I'm uh, currently the director of uh, Resol Youth Center here in Milton, and uh, but I am the former youth pastor of Southside Church of this church here and uh, and we still call it uh, our home church and so it's a really unique uh, privilege and opportunity to to be able to speak and share with you guys um, this morning Um, I went into my closet this morning and uh, and I put on clothes that were a little bit fancier than this and uh, and then I was like wait a second I'm speaking at my home church I'm speaking at like with my family with my family church why am I dressing up for my family church and so I put back on what is my most comfortable attire. So there's a lot of new people here, and I just wanted to explain something to you. That ripped jeans is like my favorite thing to wear. It's just, they're the most comfortable clothes. Is anyone with me? Does anyone else would agree that, that your clothes are most comfortable when they should be thrown out? Correct? <laughs> That's when they're the best. And so I just milk it for as long as I can. I patch it up and... And basically, until I'm going to be arrested for wearing them, I wear them a lot. So uh, I also thought, I mean, I've seen Andrew uh, over the last several weeks, and I've seen uh, Pastor Ian, and, and they've been up here, and they've been, like, speaking in shorts, right? And so I was like, well, collectively, I have, like, accumulatively, I have more material on my legs than they have on theirs, right? Yeah. So uh, so I thought, I surely I can get away with my ripped jeans. Uh I wasn't going to wear my hat this morning, but but then my daughter Ashlyn said, no, you should wear it. And I was like, okay, but I was going to bring it because, again, I feel like, I feel like mo- when you get a chance to speak, it's important to like say things that really matter, right? And so something that really matters is that you need to know that this isn't a cowboy hat. And, uh, and so I've had a few people come up and say, hey, that's a great cowboy hat. And... Um, a little a little secret into like the world of speaking and like right now I'm supposed to be building rapport with you, which hopefully I am, but but you're not supposed to say things that necessarily like create division and I'm, and I'm about to do that. Um, country music is terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. Um, is there anybody with me that just does not like country music? A few, pla- come on. If you like country music, put your hand up. Oh my God. <laughs> All right, well, that's the end of the sermon. See you later. Jeez. I'm convinced. I don't know. I, I can't prove it. I just know that it's true that in the story of creation and then Adam and Eve and, and when they t- took the first bite of the fruit, like when sin immediately entered the world, I'm convinced dueling banjos began to play in the background. It's, so anyways, so just for clarity, this is not a cowboy hat. And uh, if, if we really want to get detailed, this is, a, this is a wide-brimmed Australian fedora, okay? So, don't, thank you, thank you, yeah, thank you. So don't, don't you forget it. Um, seriously, though. Uh, no, it's not an Australian cowboy hat. Okay, you need to leave now. <laughs> um, where I thought we were going to go this morning isn't, like, at the beginning of the week, isn't actually where we've kind of ended up, or where I ended up. Um, I thought we were going to do, like, a really deep dive into sort of, like, personal narratives and cultural narratives and and maybe a little bit more of, like, the psychology of that. Um, we're going to scratch the surface of that, but um, I felt like I just really wanted to drill down on... on in essence, just one idea this morning, one thing that I th- that, in light of the series that we have been doing, um, becoming a non-anxious presence, I just thought, man, I'd just love to like sort of get focused on this maybe one last time, maybe not for the last time, but because um, I think it's so important. I think it's such an important truth. Is Bethany still in? Yes. Bethany, it might get a little rowdy up here. I was wondering if you could come and move your cello for me, maybe just against, against the back wall. We're just going to try and get our PowerPoint going. (laughs) You know, what? before we start, um, and I wanted to uh, to start and end with this, Um, I thought we'd do uh, a reflective reading just to get going, and it's a reflective reading from uh, Psalm 23, and uh, it's it's for those of you who don't know it's a beautiful psalm, um... read often in, in lots of contexts um... but i actually did this exercise when i was uh, away on a leadership at a leadership conference and, and it's just sort of a beautiful reflective reading and so what i'm gonna do is i'm just going to i'm gonna read the the scripture and then what i'd like for you to do is respond as you can see there the words and so i can relax and i just want you to do that in between each time. So I'm going to read through it once. I'm going to let you read through it with me um, the first time and you can read it and then what I'd like for you to do is actually just to close your eyes and, um, and really try and take it in. So Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. beautiful let's do it one more time but I'd invite you to close your eyes and uh, just say the same thing and so I can relax after each line the Lord is my shepherd so I lack nothing he makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're going to look at uh, at a passage of scripture this morning that uh, has, for a really long time, just really confused me. I didn't get it, and um, there's there's probably a number of passages in the Bible that. We read, and because everybody else in the room is going, hmm, hmm, right? We just kind of just go, hmm, hmm, right? And we're doing the same thing, but we don't necessarily get it. We're, we're sort of like, I don't, like, if I'm, someone needs to explain that to me. And so I thought we're going to do a little illustration here, and we're going to talk about a passage of scripture that for a long time, I just, I just didn't get it. Uh, question, is anybody in the room a genuine size 12? Like, you have a size 12 foot. Mikey? Okay. All right. We're gonna, you're already. I was going to call you up, anyways. But come on up. And um, so here's here's the deal. Just going to move this. So here's the deal. Uh, the the story that I didn't really get was Jesus calms the storm. And uh, and I did a little bit of research. And, and what I found, they actually, there's a boat that they discovered from the first century on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually called the Sea of Galilee boat. And, and they guess that this is probably the size of the boat that Jesus would have been in with his disciples when they're talking about they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And so the size of this boat, I think it's really important before we tell the story, that the size of this boat, it, it matters. So the size of the boat is 17 feet long. So when we're talking about Jesus in a boat with disciples... We're not talking about, like, the Titanic. We're not talking about a really large boat. We're not talking about a boat that has quarters underneath and sleeping rooms and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about a pretty basic fisherman boat, and it's 17 feet long. So if you could just walk out, and here's what we're going to do. Stay there. Um, I really wanted to make sure that we were, we were going to have, like, live visuals. So we've just got some buckets of water here that uh, may get used... So we're going to start with this bucket of water here, and you're going to walk 17 feet that way, okay? And while you're doing that, I'm just going to pull up the passage of, uh, of Scripture that we're reading from. Okay, perfect. And again, we want live action here, right? This is... Uh, it's important that we make this as real as possible So we've got more water that we're just going to put here. You guys brought raincoats, right, in the front row? You're good? Okay. So this is approximately the size of the boat that Jesus would have been in with his disciples when he was crossing, right? Not very big. They say across, like width-wise, it was probably about seven feet. Now, you don't have to, like, walk that out, but it's base- seven feet's going to be basically where I'm standing, this table, to like where Jeremy is at the front of that table. Like seven feet is not very wide. The point I'm illustrating is that this was not a big boat, correct? This is not a big boat. And then he had all the disciples in the boat. So I'm just gonna ask for, like we won't even assume that all 12 were with him. We won't even assume that there's 13. You can imagine in a boat this size, if if all 13 were in the boat, that's pretty tight quarters. So I'm just gonna ask for like, Five or six or something like that. Willing participants to come up with Mikey and like stand sort of in front of me here. So anyone willing, or I'll just call you out. Gabriel, yeah, thank you for that hand. I saw that. Shane, thank you so much. That's great. AJ, perfect. Wayne, you're always a good sport. Get up here. Victor, you've been talking too much today. Get up here. Okay, so one, two, three, oh yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good. And uh, perfect. Okay, so you can see. You can see already, right? These are these are big, young, or not so young, uh, strapping <laughs> men. And <laughs> I didn't point fingers. <laughs> like, this is not a big boat. And then we have Jesus. Okay, so we need Jesus. No one ever likes to play Jesus. I get it. That's, that's like a lot of responsibility. Um, but then we have Jesus. You know what, Daniel? Come on, buddy. I, you know you. I figure I have to get you up here somehow. So then it says like Jesus is sleeping, and he's actually, so let's say this is the front of the boat, okay, and let's say this is the back of the boat, and so maybe you guys can move up just slightly, like be shoulder to shoulder or something, it doesn't really matter, and Jesus is sleeping, it says, in the back of the boat, so I mean, if you're willing, maybe like lie down or something, or I don't know, do whatever you're comfortable with. This is my good friend, Daniel. He had no idea he was getting into this. And to make matters worse, it even says in one of the passages, it says that he actually, he was sleeping on a cushion. Like, it just rubs it in, right? So here's the story. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they fell, as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger, Okay, go. They were in great, you're, you're, dra- you're worried, you're, yeah, that's it, right. Perfect. Keep it up. Okay, so they're drowning. You guys don't look very nervous. So they're drowning. Jesus is sleeping. Waves of water are coming across them as they go. Yeah, you're still drowning. You're still drowning. We've got to make sure Victor gets a little wet here. Waves. Is Lynn in the building? I promise I'll vacuum. Water's sweeping over. And Jesus is still sleeping. He's just chilling. Excuse me. So what it says is, the disciples went to him and woke him, saying, Master... We're going to drown. So, Victor, you can do that on your own. You go and shake him and say, We're gonna drown, we're gonna drown. We're gonna drown. <laughs> so, so Jesus gets up and it says, He got up. You don't have to act this out if you don't want it's okay, but you can stand up. Uh it says, He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and was calm. And then he looks at his dis- <laughs> he, he looks at his disciples. And he says this, where is your faith? Yeah. (laughs) And it says, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. All right, let's give these guys like a great hand for acting out for us. Amazing. Shake it off up here. Shake it off up here. So here's what I didn't. Here's what I really struggled with in this story. I don't know anyone in this room that were in a situation like this, where they were in a storm, really worried. (laughs) Shake it off. Shake, shake, shake it. Uh, They were genuinely worried that they were going to die, and you've got a very able-bodied, another very able-bodied person. In the boat, taking a nap. Now, you have to consider, like, what they have also seen from Jesus at this point in time. So, by this point in time, they've spent at least a year and a half, potentially two years with him. They've seen him uh, heal people of diseases. They've seen people get up and walk that couldn't walk. They've seen him uh, drive out demons. They've seen him do, like, just incredible—they've seen him change water. Like, they've seen him do incredible, incredible things— they're in the storm, they feel like they're gonna die, and they're like, maybe this guy could help, right? Like, he's he's he knows how to do some stuff, right? Like, at the very least, maybe he could grab a bucket and help build water. Would is there anyone in this room? Maybe you have a far greater faith, is there anyone in this room who would not have been like, hey Jesus, can you at least get up and pick up a bucket and help? You think so? Okay, well, you have tremendous faith, my friend. Because <laughs> I just never got it. And and then he accuses them of sin like because they don't have this faith and I was like I don't understand like where's their lack of faith this seems like a really reasonable thing to wake up to wake up a guy who probably could help and and do this and so this is one of the passages where where I actually believe that you can learn you can absolutely learn from from all scripture and so each place where this story unfolds uh it You can learn something from it. However, I think this is one of the stories where we really benefit from having uh, three versions of the story. And all versions um, of the story are in essence the same, but there is one slight variation. And I was going to have, we're going to read all of them, but we probably don't have time for that. Um, The variation, I'm going to ask for you just to listen as I read from Mark, because there's something really important here that I think it gets at the heart of why... He he asked them why they had no faith. So this is uh, Mark's account of Jesus calming the storm. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And it relates specifically to what the disciples. I'll give you a big hand. That it relates to what the disciples said to Jesus. Yeah. Don't you care if we drown? And I think this is the essence of Jesus' rebuke to his disciples in that moment, because I think it was actually very, very realistic. Very. It, it was not an unreasonable thing for them in that moment where they're genuinely fearing for their lives, that they might go to their master, their teacher, and say, hey, can you help? That seems really normal and natural. But then they throw this accusation at him, and they say, don't you care if we die? And you see, if we see faith through a relational lens, then we begin to understand why, why they receive that rebuke. So the disciples, in that moment, they were questioning the nature of Jesus' character. It wasn't just that they, that they were worried. It wasn't just that they were going to die. They were going, hey, we're following you. We've been with you. We've seen all this great stuff. Do you not care about us? And so the attack or the question was really about the nature of his character. And with a view from the end, because, because we now understand that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh— What they were really questioning was they were questioning the nature and character of God himself. And so what I really want, if there's nothing else that you walk away with this morning, and it may be a challenge for some of you, I want you to understand that faith is a relational word. That our faith is not, when when Christians speak of faith, we are not talking about wishful thinking or or false hopes, or work, just believing against the evidence that something might be true. When we talk about faith, we are talking about our relationship with our creator. That's what faith is. So our faith is not placed in things or in circumstances, but in the person of Jesus. And Jesus reveals to us the true nature of faith. God and his character. The story of the Bible, I'll just read this. The story of the Bible, the story of God from beginning to end is one of relationship. God longs to be in relationship with his creation. And Jesus is the revelation of God in human form, demonstrating to us who he is, what he's like, what his essence is, which is love, goodness, kindness, compassion, mercy, Grace, forgiveness, I could, I could go on. This is the revelation of God, and our faith is in a person, not in circumstances or things. Let me drill down a little bit further. Sometimes I hear Christians use the term faith in context that I'm not, su- I'm not sure, in my analytical brain, I'm not sure what they mean. So when someone says, I have faith that I'm going to get that job, Do they mean they're hoping that they get the job? Are they saying that they wish that they get the job? Or are they saying, I have faith in Jesus that I'll get the job? And if they're saying that their faith is relational in that context, have they been told directly that they're going to get that job? Do they have firsthand information that they're going to get that job? So if someone says, I have faith that I'm going to get that job, my question is, so where are you placing your faith in? If someone says, I have faith and I'm going to do good on a test, what are you talking about? I work with young people. I have faith that if I ask that girl out, she's going to say yes. What does that mean? A little more serious. I have faith that God is going to heal this cancer. So the question that I'm asking is, like, where are you placing that faith? Because when we put it in circumstances, or when we put it in things, ultimately what we're doing is is we're actually putting the onus back on ourselves. I have faith that this is going to happen. I have faith that, that I'm going to do well on this. I have... And again, it'd be... So, so the scripture can be tricky sometimes, because it does give us language that sometimes almost makes it sound commoditizes it so like with faith of a mustard seed right that sounds like it's a thing and there are places in the scripture where it says faith can grow and so we go oh okay so it's almost like a muscle right where we can flex it and we can grow but the reality is is that and and faith certainly can grow but it grows in the context of relationship to our creator it doesn't grow as if it's a muscle that we have to work out all the time, and the stronger we get, the more likely we might be able to, to see someone cured of cancer or see someone healed of a disease or have you. And if we don't, then our muscle is going to shrink, and then we can't do that anymore. I propose to you that that's actually a that's a false view of Christian faith. The way faith is presented to us in the Christian context is that faith is in the context of relationship. We place our faith. In the person of Jesus, we place our faith in God. God wants us to know that he is for us, that he loves us, and that we can put our trust and our faith in him through every circumstance. We are challenged when we turn the table on ourselves, or we turn sort of the focus on ourselves and say, "I have faith and my faith is big and I ha- it's going to be strong and its all, and therefore this is going to happen." And sometimes we, we experience great disappointment, because because we've put that faith, we think that if we just try harder, we think harder, or if we read our Bible more or what have you, that, 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 that then things will go the way we want them to, but, but sometimes things don't go the way we want them to, and sometimes don't, things just don't work out. And, and some of this comes down to the question of, of the events in our lives and how active is God in our lives on a daily basis. On one continuum, we have the idea that God is involved in every single detail of our lives, literally everything. And then on the other side of the continuum, we have, we have the idea that God is not very active. I mean, deism is the belief that God created everything, but then basically stepped back and is not involved at all. Some some would hold on to that position. I don't believe that's a faith position either. Or a Christian faith position. But on this continuum, what is our expectation in terms of how how involved God is in our everyday lives? And and when do we know? And I'm I'm presenting this as a question because i don't know when do we know that authentically something was of god and when do we know or when when do are we not sure and we we're just maybe that was god maybe that wasn't god and and then there are other times that maybe maybe life just happens right is god orchestrating absolutely everything that happens in our lives i would propose no and i don't think that that is a christian perspective when Jesus calms the storm and he rebukes his disciples, the rebuke is that is them questioning the na- his nature and whether he actually cares about them. And I think in our relationship with God, that is, that is our interaction with him. He desires for us to know, to believe, to live in the reality that regardless of circumstances, regardless of even evidence before us, that he is with us at all times, loving us, cheering us on, working for our good. We're going to get there in a minute, too. Okay, we're going to switch gears for a second, and then uh, we'll talk about narratives, and then we'll jump back to this for a couple more minutes. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, There are three images in my mind which I must continually forsake and replace by better ones. The false image of God, the false image of my neighbors, and the false image of myself. So let's talk about uh, self for a little bit. One of the things that I've really appreciated about this series is that they've been talking about um, deceptive, uh, deceptive ideas, right, and the whole, the whole idea that there are lies in our world and even lies within us that, uh, that we need to be aware of and that we need to be woken up to and, and live out uh, a better truth in a better way. And so, even with the Teens at Youth Center, we worked through this not that long ago. And the the whole idea of a personal narrative is this, that throughout life, our personal experiences become personal personal stories. That we attach stories to the things that happen to us. And then people give these stories meaning. And then these stories begin to shape a person's identity. So the question that I ask is, what happens when our stories are shaped by lies? I would dare to guess that there's a whole bunch of us in this room who have a false somehow have a false view of yourself because of circumstances that happened to you earlier in your life or even words that were spoken to you earlier in your life that you interpreted to be much bigger than what probably they were even intended at the time and it has set a trajectory for the way your life has gone. And that potentially, it even it's something that you wrestle with to this day. It causes guilt. It causes shame. You feel like you question your value and worth. All because of an event or a circumstance that, that you interpreted in a certain way that, that, cr- that, that made it bigger, that created a narrative that set the tra- trajectory of your life. So another way of saying it is this. There was the event, right? There's an event that happens in our lives. And that's what actually happens. So that you, we can always debate, right, like whether something, you know, the details of an event, but in its truest form, the event is just what happens. And then that leads to the story, which is how we interpret the event or our experience. Which then leads to the outcome, which is the formation of our identity, which then leads to the trajectory, how we move forward in life. And so I think it's so important, and this is one of the reasons why I love working with young people, because I love trying to help them root out the lies that they're believing early on in their life so that they don't set themselves on a trajectory of 20, 30, 40 years of believing stuff that's just not true about themselves. We just, over the summer, we did a program uh, called The Way at the Youth Center for uh, a group of young men. It's not specific for young men, but that's just the way it worked out this summer. Um, and it was all about exploring faith more intentionally, those that wanted to do it from the Youth Center. And it's, it, was, it was powerful to me as, I, as I'm interacting with these young men who I think the world of and yet hear their own view of themselves in this day and age. At, at 15, 16, 17 years of age... And, and even the pressure that, that 15, 16, and 17 year old young men are feeling to be the man every single day. And so we create these narratives. Again, it can be a word, it could be a cruel thing that a parent says to you, it can be something that a bully said to you or did to you, it could be any number of things. Some, and again, sometimes we even just misinterpret an event and we take things on ourselves. Uh, anyone know the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yeah? Okay. Uh it's a powerful movie. It's a super powerful movie. Um I won't go into the details of the movie, because 'cause I'll go off in a ten It's a really good movie. But anyways, this guy Will, he's he's um He's, like, brilliant, but he lives in a, you know, a, a brutal place, and, and no one knows his brilliance, and, and he ends up connecting with this counselor, and the counselor's interacting with him, trying to, like, help him, you know, work through some stuff. And it ter- turns out that, that Will was, was abused really badly as a kid, and, uh, and he's got burn marks on his arms and stuff like that, and he was, he was abused terribly in many ways. And there's this point in the movie, I might even get emotional as you talk about it, because it's just powerful. And I and it's I get emotional because I know that it's true in 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 real life as well. There's this point in the movie where his counselor, Sean, just says to him, you know, it's not your fault. And Will's and Will's like because Will's like, he's a tough I forget where he's from. It's like I don't know, the Bronx or something. Like something. Yeah. Tough guy. And he and he's just like, Yeah, I know, I know. And Sean's like, his counselor's like, no, no, Will, like, it's not your fault. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know, it's good, it's good, I know. And he's like, no, Will, it's not your fault. And he just keeps saying that, and eventually Will, like, just, well, actually, eventually Will, like, shoves him as he's starting to cry, and he's like, don't mess with me, man. Don't, sc- don't screw around with me, man. And Sean, and the counselor, just keeps moving in, and it's like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Will was living with this narrative that all of the abuse that he had received was somehow his fault until he's just crying. Yeah, it's such a powerful scene. He's just crying in in the arms of his counselor. And you see that, like, all of that guilt and all that shame just melt away because he was believing this false narrative that it was all his fault. False narratives can be incredibly powerful and terribly detrimental in our lives. And so we need to be able to identify the lies that we are told, particularly when we're younger, and be able to to replace them with the truth so that we set ourselves on a on a trajectory on a life that where we're believing things that are true about ourselves and our neighbors and about God and not falsehoods. So matters. My dad. So here's here's a good narrative. I'll cry again. Uh, my dad grew up with uh, a, a disease, a childhood disease, where one side of his body grew faster than the other. My understanding is as a kid, he had to like, have a brace, and so he was never really able to be involved in sports when he was younger, and, and just mobility was always challenging for him. But as a kid and as a teenager, he would go out and do things with me. I remember we went golfing once. We don't golf, but we just went out because it was something to do together. And I remember we golfed, and, and then for like the next two weeks, he was in pain. Because he golfed with me, that's powerful. And then I'm a ball player. I love ball, man. I love baseball. And 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 he, he would play catch with me. And I knew that whenever he played catch with me, just the motion on his on his hips and what have you, I knew there would be a day or two that he would feel that he would feel that pain and that discomfort just because he threw the ball with me. But he'd still throw the ball with me. It's a beautiful narrative. It gives me. It's a beautiful picture of a father. It's a beautiful picture of a loving father. It's why when I watch Field of Dreams, anyone, the movie Field of Dreams, yeah. It's every time I cry every time I watch Field of Dreams. It's like, Dad, you want to have a catch? It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so there are beautiful narratives that shape our lives as well but it's so it matters so much that we actually set ourselves on the right trajectory rooting out the lies replacing it with the truth i have cards i carry around all the time actually in my in my laptop case that literally have written out so you write someone's name on it and it says that that this is the lie that they're believing and they're going to replace it with this truth and because man it's powerful stuff yeah i'm just saying this is why it's important so the question is, who writes your story? And who does God say you are? Let's touch base really quickly on cultural narratives. Here's a big idea that I'm going to shrink down into like a really simple thing. So we have shifted from a meta-narrative culture to a micro-narrative culture. Throughout human history, uh, for, the, for the most part, with very few exceptions, uh, people have existed with a meta-narrative. Meta narrative is big story. That's literally what it's translated. Big story, Um, and for most people throughout human history, what has the big story been over their lives? Religion, God, right? It's why everywhere you go in the world, there are there are people that have at least some sense of there being a higher power, something, some god, some religion that they need to that they should defer to, what have you. There is this narrative, this meta narrative that exists has existed pretty much throughout human history. with very few exceptions. Whether it was, you know, the rise of modernity and the Enlightenment or whether it was uh, post-modernity or uh, who knows where it, when, when and where it happened, but uh, at a certain point, our culture, certainly certainly secular society, I would say a lot of Western culture just said, we don't believe in this anymore. We don't believe that there's a narrative, one single narrative that somehow gives meaning and purpose and informs our lives. We just don't believe that's true and so we traded in this meta-narrative, this God-narrative, but then what happens when you trade in the God-narrative? We still have to have narratives, right? Like, everybody has narratives that form and shape their lives. So we trade in the God-narrative, but let me ask you a question. If God is not real, then who, who's, going to be the, who's going to be the center of your lives? If God is not going to be the center of your life, who's going to be the center of your life? The government? Are you going to make the government the center of your lives? Are you going to make your neighbor the center of your lives? You know, make Pastor Ian or Pastor Andrew, the center of your lives. Like, who, who gets that prominent place, right? Who gets the focal? Who gets the focal point? And what has happened in our, in our, in our secular society is that because we have forsaken this grand narrative, this narrative that says God is real and, and I need to be in relationship with him, what happens is there's only one logical conclusion in terms of who's going to be at the center of that narrative, and that is yourself, and then we wonder why, why our, our society and our culture is becoming uh, more and more sort of internally focused and finding your own truth instead of what truth actually is. And, and the accusation of young people all the time, again, I work with young people, so I hear it all the time, young people are so entitled. Well, we're creating a culture that actually tells them that the whole universe revolves around them. That's ultimately the narrative that we're, that we're sharing. We don't say that. But by the nature of a micro-narrative, that's in essence what what we are communicating. And so we've moved from a God-centered narrative to a me-centered narrative. problem is we make a really lousy center of the universe. We do. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that anxiety is way more prevalent than ever if individuals feel that they have to carry the weight of the world on their own shoulders. Just think about... Think about I just I just started jotting down. I didn't even intend to do this. I just started jotting down some of the things that we sung about this morning. God is fighting our battles. God is all-powerful. We are chosen. We're no longer slaves to fear. He accepts our weaknesses, our flaws. We're loved. He calls us his friend. We are children of God. Just think about these narratives alone and think about how significant they are and we sing them every single Sunday and we feel them and we know the significance of them as narrative in our lives but then think about the individual who's living life without any of these narratives and every single problem in the world is on their shoulders and then we go, I wonder why anxiety is really high these days. Well, particularly I can say for young people they feel like the weight of the world is on them. They feel like it; they just have to carry it all, and it's creating a tremendous burden. And one of the, I think, one of the gifts that that the church has to offer to this generation is are, are the narratives of our faith that actually says that you're not alone. I say, sometimes, when I'm feeling cheeky, which is, maybe that's too often, but. Uh, you know, I'll say to someone who's, like, questioning the fact that we we're faith-based with youth center. I said, well, you, do you want to hear some of, like, the scandalous things that we say to teenagers? Like, we might say to them that, you know what? You know what? God, the Bible says, God says that he actually knew you before you were even born. So, like, you know, your life's not a mistake. Like, you're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Your life's really valuable. You have tremendous worth. Ooh, that's, like... That's dangerous stuff, right? Like, how dare we fill teenagers' minds with such, you know, like, right? Like, it's so good. It's so good. When someone feels alone, which everybody feels alone, even when you're in a crowd, sometimes you feel alone. When someone feels alone, and I believe, I, I've been in the field of mental health, I've been in the field of addictions, I believe in, in, in so many of the great practices that exist in, in all of those fields um, but here's, here's the truth. At the end of the day, I don't go home with a teenager, nor does a counselor, nor does a teacher, nor does anybody. We do not have the ability to be present with any person 100% of the time. So to say to a teen, hey, you know what? There will be times when you're alone, but you're not actually alone because God's with you at all times, He's, He loves you. That's powerful. Like we need that the value and the worth that we can speak into the young people's lives when we provide a grander narrative. It's so good. So reclaiming Romans 828, this is where we're gonna where we're gonna land. I uh, I I was able to listen in on um, on last week's amazing imprompt, uh, impromptu impromptu a that Ian and Andrew uh, led. And um, and it was really good I thought it was a great way for like, people to ask questions and interact and, and um, Victor I heard your question and I, it was about Romans 8.28 and so I thought about you I was, I was preparing, uh, preparing it's also why I brought you up and threw, you, threw stuff on you just yeah uh, so let me read to you Romans 8.28 and I want to start a little bit a little bit earlier because we read it in context I think it's more helpful So it starts out talking about that there's no condemnation for people who are in Christ Jesus. Goes into the whole that we don't have a spirit of fear, but that we actually have a spirit by which we call out to Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. And then it goes on and he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that in creation itself will be liberated from its bond from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of god and this is where i really want you to catch things for we know that we that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time all of creation is groaning not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So the whole world is groaning. We're groaning. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. It's beautiful. The creation groans. We groan. The Spirit within us groans on our behalf. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And that's when it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who've been called according to his purpose. Let me tell you, I recognize that Romans 8:28 has been misused and mistimely used many times before. It is not always the right time to quote Romans 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. I get that. I remember we we were right behind a horrific car accident where this minivan rolled over three or four times on the highway. We were we were right there. I jumped out. A whole bunch of people jumped out. I was holding the door. It was on its side. I was holding the door. People were like holding the people in place so that they weren't being like circulation would be cut off from their belts and they were barely conscious. That would not have been a good time to say, "Hey, you know what? Don't worry, because God's working everything out for your good." And right, like timing really does matter and and so this is not a message of insensitivity but man do we need to hang on to this verse I think this is one of the most crucial promises that we have from God and it's really important that we highlight these two things it does not say that God is making all things happen it's really really important and again that continuum of God makes everything happen God's not making anything happen I think we all might find ourselves on different places in that continuum in terms of like, yeah, I think he's really active. Oh, maybe not as active. We might fall in different places on that continuum. But what the scripture is not saying here, and I don't believe it says anywhere, is that God is making everything happen. So that's not what this passage is saying. It also doesn't say that God will make everything good in your life, which I think is what a lot of times people misinterpret. What they're hearing is God's going to make everything good for the people that love him. That's not what it's saying. Read it again. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, not that he will make everything good. So at the heart of it, sometimes seen but more often unseen, we we believe in a God who loves us unconditionally and is willing good for our lives at all times. That's our faith. That's biblical faith. That's staring down the best of our times and the worst of our times, the best circumstances and the worst circumstances going, I don't know why any of this is happening. And it's okay. The why questions to God, man, ask the why questions to God. God can take it. Why is this happening? It's all right. Ask. Wrestle. Bible's full of people who wrestled with God. But at the end of the day, our faith is relational. Our faith is in the one who we believe is is benevolent, and is working on our behalf at all times, willing good for our lives. That is an amazing faith, and it's the heart of a perfect and loving Father. So to end, we're going to do this uh, reading one more time, and I'm going to ask that you just close your eyes again. Maybe take a deep breath. and just reflect on the truth that God loves you and that somehow some way he is willing the best for your life repeat and so i can relax after i read these lines The Lord is my shepherd, and so I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And everyone said,